Welcome again, everyone, to the second of four podcasts based on Keller's articles about the state of the church. Again, I'm Tim Filston, leading you through. The first article focused on the mainline church decline. This second article is about evangelical decline. This section is more likely to hurt your feelings. You know, we all have, those of us who are participating in this study, we all have more invested in the evangelical movement than the mainline institutions at this point, even if, like me, you grew up in the mainline church. But we must be willing to name the elephants in the room when it comes to what evangelicals stand for and uh, how we're standing for it. Like Jim Collins says in his book, Good to Great, the best led companies are headed by people willing to look at the brutal facts with unwavering faith that they will prevail. Brutal facts with unwavering faith. The discomfort of naming problems with evangelicalism is in seeing our own participation in these problems. Keller doesn't use the word blind spots, but this article names a bunch of them, especially the defensiveness that makes evangelicals look a lot more like early 20th century fundamentalists. Again, I'll give you his outline and then remind you of it along the way. So this second podcast has three segments. One, how to distinguish evangelical from fundamentalist. Two, the two addresses of every Christian. Every, every Christian has two addresses. And three, the external influences that distract us from our main thing. So we're going to distinguish evangelicalism today by looking at a little history and at a few competing movements today. Let's do it. How to distinguish, number one, how to distinguish evangelical from fundamentalist. Let's simplify. An evangelical is orthodox and socially engaged. That pretty much sums it up. Centered on historic Christianity, but called out to serve and heal the culture. What do we mean by orthodox? Well, four essential beliefs known as the Bebbington Four make it clear. Here they are. Scripture, the cross, conversion, and activism. I'll say it again. Scripture, the cross, conversion, and activism. Evangelicals have a high view of Scripture of the atoning work of the cross, the need to connect personally by faith with Christ, and to respond to Jesus' call to a world in need. That defines us theologically. So how did evangelicals get conflated with fundamentalists? Well, around 1920, during the fundamentalist modernist debates and the Scopes Monkey Trial, you remember that, that's when it happened. This is when mainline churches started to go one way like we talked about last week, and conservative churches another way. And all conservatives were lumped together, fundamentalists and evangelicals together. But in time, leaders like Akengay and Carl Henry and Billy Graham broke the movement free of fundamentalism by defining the differences through key distinguishing values. I probably should say they, they broke the movement free again because it, it's, it's an ancient movement. 
that always looks to Scripture and always looks outward in a winning way to, towards the world in need. But, uh, you know, we have to keep doing these course corrections. And here's, here's how Billy Graham and Carl Henry and Ockengay did that. They, they began to del deal again with complexity, the complexity of the culture, rather than withdrawing from it. To center on the gospel story rather than on scruples. And to be confident enough in what we stand for that we are willing to be self-critical about how we stand for it. So that's, uh, that's, that's enough on distinguishing fundamentalists from, from evangelicals. But, um, but well, and, uh, on, on the other hand, we, we need to continue to make some distinctions by looking at the next step here. To distinguish evangelicals from fundamentalists, we've got to recognize we, we all have two addresses. One is theological and the other is cultural. A, a set of beliefs and our cultural norms. And sometimes we get those things out of order, out of priority order. Uh, so uh, let's, let's, let, let's pull our toes back and be honest about where our cultural commitments are. Because, you know, theologically, again, that's the first address, and that's pretty clear. Conservative Protestants affirm the Bebbington Four. That's the first address. But the second address, the social or cultural address, is where things feel a bit more personal. These aren't theological essentials, but they do feel like it sometimes. And to make these the main thing is to lapse into fundamentalism. Does that make sense? Let me, let me say that again. Yeah, theological essentials are key and a given, and cultural norms are important. But they're not the main thing. Sometimes we, we make it the main thing, and that's when we lapse into fundamentalism. Here are six cultural biases paired up with a more biblical view. Um, we all live at one of these two addresses, all right? So, moralism versus grace. You're going to live at one of those addresses, moralism or grace. This is an obvious difference between rules-based Christianity, well, not really Christianity, or relationship-based faith. That's the first one. Second one is this, anti-intellectual versus curious or scholarship. Anti-intellectual versus scholarship. You know, when the academy, we looked at last week when the academy started to influence the church with its naturalist Worldview fundamentalists began to write off all scholarship. No, 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 not good. We need to stay intellectually honest and curious. Number three, anti-intellectual or sorry, I already covered that one. Anti-institutional versus accountable. Think of that. Think of that contrast here now. Anti-institution versus accountability to one another. Distrusting institutional structure. That, that was a popular culture thing from the 1960s. And, you know, it's kind of strange to think that fundamentalists would be steered by the culture, but they are. They are. Some conservatives put more stock in their celebrity leaders than in our common call in Christ, our union in Christ. They, they look to expedient growth of the church rather than to collaboration, which takes a long-term view 
and it takes a lot of trust. Number four, individualism versus social reform. All conservatives emphasize personal responsibility, so individual responsibility. But it can become an ism if we stick our heads in the sand like an ostrich, you know, and discount the way that the deck is stacked against some folks. Evangelicals recognize the need for social reform and systemic problems that work against some, that, that create an unlevel playing field. Number five, dualism versus vision for all of life. Now this one's a little subtle, but crucially important. Fundamentalists look at everything through the lens of religion and don't have a strong common grace category. Yes, it's a fallen world, but if God is the creator of it, then we should embrace it. Embrace creation in such a way that we are curious and, and love to discover and explore it. For example, even just to, to find uh, wisdom that's discovered through social sciences, even like the way that the Enneagram uh, appeals to social science, that's okay. It's okay to discover things that way. There is a general revelation or a common grace revelation. There's also special revelation of, through Scripture. But, uh, but, but to, to sort of discount something just because it doesn't come straight out of the Bible is fundamentalism. I, I remember somebody uh, discounting the Enneagram, and when I, when I pressed her about it, you know, what, what I discovered was that what she really didn't like were the lines connecting the diagram of all the different Enneagram numbers. I think it just, she had an association with a pentagram. And so she just dismissed it out of hand. Now that's, that is, that's shallow thinking. That's very defensive and it's dualistic where you're carving everything up as for or against, as light or dark. And the final one that, that uh, describes these two addresses is enculturated or reflective. In other words, do we just sort of accept traditional culture and look back in nostalgia, or are we willing to be self-reflective and self-critical about uh, things like gender roles or racial boundaries or nationalism? The upshot here is that a healthy evangelical movement is led by people whose second address, the social or cultural address, is defined by grace by intellectual curiosity, by accountability and social reform, by the abundant life, and by a willingness to reflect on cultural excesses, left and right. So from here, Keller makes one more move here in this second article. He names some other elephants that are external influences distracting us from the main thing. And part of the goal here is to reclaim the word evangelical. In other words, we need to have a conservative Protestantism that's neither left nor right. That doesn't mean it's mushy middle either. And that's where I, I think uh, you know, I cross swords with people who are critical of, of Keller's approach. Uh, we need to understand how to engage in a pluralistic culture rather than without mentioning it, thinking that somehow we're going to have a theocracy, a, a Christian theocracy. It, we're not, and that's not... 
not what we're called to do. We're, we're called to pray thy kingdom come and not to power up and, and try to run over people with our theology. It kind of reminds me of a time when some religious grumpy people were criticizing my involvement with Young Life. They said, you guys all talk about building bridges to teenage culture, but you never cross it with the gospel. I didn't know what to say. I just thought, that's, that's incredible that somebody would just be uh, critiquing me for reaching out. Later on, I heard a line that summed up <laughs> this criticism. I wish I had this line when, when they, they said that to me. They said, I like the way we're reaching out beyond the walls of the church better than the way you're not. Yeah, that, that, I think, applies to what we're talking about here. What does this outward posture look like? What does a, a healthy evangelical engagement with pluralistic culture look like? Keller's gotten similar criticism for being winsome as if it represented some kind of a, a moderate compromise. But he does not offer some middle-of-the-road way between liberal and conservative. He's calling for a return to the main thing, to leave political excess of left and right behind. That means we need to be more interested in winning people to Christianity than just defending social conservatism. Let me say that again. It means we need to be more interested in winning people to the gospel than just in defending social conservatism. So building a bridge, and speaking into secular culture, that Keller makes these concessions, that we need to concede that there's been abuse by prominent leaders in conservative institutions, that we need to recognize that leveraging church for political power has not been winning people over. You know, anybody who's been married for more than a week understands you can win an argument without winning somebody to it. So, see, I think Keller's not pitching for a nuanced middle way, but trying to define Christianity's main thing apart from political excess. He ends the article with an encouraging word about reasons to hope, including the limits of secularism, to build community, just not very good at it, the growth of the global church, the strength of the evangelical movement, because of people who are committed to it, they, they truly internalize what they believe. And of course, Jesus' promise about the church, that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Well, that's section two of uh, this is the second article and that's the summary of it the next article goes even further to help us distinguish christianity from certain cultural influences and layers he builds on our call to keep the main thing the main thing mm -hmm.